Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. Thanks for joining us. Go ahead and get the boring stuff out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but... If you like what you hear, you want to do something nice, please consider us leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also follow us on social media on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. For those of you that follow us on Facebook, you might have saw I posted that I had a conversation with Dave Keon yesterday, the former Toronto Maple Leafs team captain and all-time great. And it was really cool to talk to him. I was able to get in touch with him and we talked for a few minutes. He called me on the phone. He explained that he doesn't do interviews anymore, but wanted to let me know that he appreciated me reaching out. And if I had any questions, he'd be more than happy to answer them. He just didn't really like doing interviews. And I just thought that was so nice that he reached back out. He doesn't know me from Adam and the fact that he did that, I thought says a lot about him as a person. And I also understand that not every player is going to want to be interviewed and getting on a microphone sometimes is, is kind of challenging for people. And also sometimes people have just told these stories over and over again. They don't want to just say them anymore. But the fact that he reached out to me and said, hey, I, I appreciate you asking. It's just not something I'm into. I was really, really impressed by that. Without further ado, the reason you're here, let's get to part two of our interview with Chris Dingman. For those of you that haven't caught part one, you should definitely go back and listen. He talks about the first two rounds. During part two of the interview, we pick up with the second two rounds of the playoffs, as well as winning the Stanley Cup, celebrating afterwards, and some cool experiences Chris got to participate in as a result of winning the Cup. Let's go ahead and get to it. It's time for part two of our interview with Chris Dingman. After the game, Peter Forsberg is eating out at a restaurant, and it turns out that he collapses at the restaurant, and it ends up he has a ruptured spleen. Yep, I was there. <laughs> uh, so you were there. I mean, I can't even imagine how scary that is just to see a friend of yours fall down and, and things like that, let alone a ruptured spleen. We, we've talked a little bit about Peter. What's everyone's reaction when you find out he's not going to be playing the rest of the series? Well, I just think uh, that night it was uh... – you know, a place called the Chop House. It pretty much, pretty much the whole team was there, from what I recall, and everyone was sitting in all different tables. And Peter wasn't feeling good, and then I guess he called the trainer, or someone called the trainer. And we didn't really hear about what happened till after. And you know, I was uh, obviously disappointing, and you know, because Peter was one again one of the best players ever, but was a great guy. And you know, once we found out he was okay, but we were missing him, and you know, we knew we were gonna have to play without him, and. You know, selfishly for me, I knew it was a better opportunity for me to be in the lineup, but you never want a guy to be, you know, obviously you have something like that happen. But what we did is we used that to rally around, you know, our team. And, you know, we wanted to win for him. And to be honest, what it did for our team is going into the St. Louis series. And, you know, I just remember there was a game. I don't know which game it was, but we went into triple overtime, I believe it was. And, and you know, we had scored a goal our line, and we'd only played like eight minutes or something going into triple overtime. And, you know, before that, before Peter got hurt, you know, Bob Hartley's mentality, I remember Greg DeVries telling me is that he was just going to play his top two guys. And, you know, if you look at the minutes, the, the previous playoffs and early in the playoffs, the minutes that Peter and Joe were playing were just ridiculous. It was just as a four, they were playing 23 minutes some nights. And, you know, it's hard to hard, really difficult to do that game in a game out. And, you know, I just remember Pete getting hurt and everyone wanting to rally around that. And, you know, I just remember there was an instance where, where again, we're going back to, we're going in a triple overtime and, 
you know, never forget we're in St. Louis and Ray Bork stands up and he goes in and walks through everybody in the locker room there and then goes into the coach's room, slams the door. And he came out like two minutes later and came out and all he said was everyone's going to play, you know, F it, be ready. And we're like, well, what? <laughs> and then, you know, everyone be ready, you know, you know you're going to play. And basically, you know, talking over a couple of cold ones after was it, you know, he went in there and said, yeah, I can't play these minutes. Play everybody. Our, we have a good, you know, our team is good enough. We have... One through six on D, and then, you know, one through 12 and four is our goal. Is like, we're, well, we, we have a good team. You need to play everybody, and basically. And for me, that was like all the respect in the world where you have, again, one of the best defensemen of all time going in there and saying, I want to win this badly. Play me less. Play everybody. Our team's good enough. I trust, you know, Chris Dingman or Steve Reinprecht or Martin School or Greg DeVries or. You know, play everybody. So that's uh, – and that was, you know, really – it was really unfortunate for Peter not to be able to play. But as a team, it kind of – I think that's where Bob kind of listened to that and said, okay, yeah, well, we don't have Peter. we got to use everybody else. You know, we got to – this is why it's a team. And to me, it's the ultimate team game where, you know, you look at the Capitals winning last year and the different guys that contributed to that that – you know, every year there's a couple guys that step up and make a name for themselves or, you know, have a big playoff that you really maybe never heard of before. And You look back at teams of one and there was always a defining moment or, you know, certain things. And obviously the team we were on had a couple of those, but I just remember that. Obviously, Peter, you know, people were kind of writing us off, that, you know, once Peter was out of lineup. And, you know, what that did is it forced everyone else to step their game up. And, you know, Peter was such a well-liked and well-respected guy that, you know, everybody really wanted to step up for him. I'm glad that you shared that because that's something on this side from the fan side that we would have never seen. And it's interesting to know that there are those events that happen that in the locker room where everything changes. And you're right. This St. Louis Blues team was stacked. They had Chris Pronger. They had Keith Kachuk. They were a gritty team. And during game one, Bob Hartley, you got hit by Sean Hill in what looked like a pretty awful hit. (laughs) I always feel weird asking guys, do you remember the hit? Because you probably got your bell rung pretty good. But, oh, yeah, yeah. But it sounds like from your reaction, this was a pretty it – it was a rough hit, wasn't it? Well, yeah, the, actually just before that, <clears throat> he dumped it in. I smoked him pretty good, clean head, and then he just basically ran me. As soon as I turned around, he caught me right in the chin. And the legs weren't working. The brain <laughs> – the neurons weren't going away to my feet. And uh, obviously it was good cost, and I went and saw the doctor and didn't practice the next day and then just played the game after and, you know, it felt a little off, but it was one of those things where I just, okay, take warm-up, and, you know, I took pregame skate, and I was like, do you feel okay? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I feel all right. And, you know, I didn't feel all right, but, I, you know, pretty much lied because I wanted to play. And right. Then just got into the game, and in warm-up, it was just, okay, get through warm-up, and then in the game, it was like, okay, just get ahead, your first shift, get yourself into things. And, you know, it was okay after that, but, uh, yeah, they had a team that's, you know, look back on it now, and, you know, if we had the same goalie in both ends, we'd probably lose, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. That team was that good. I mean, like, Doug Waite, uh, I mean, going down the line, I think they had, uh, who was the right-handed shot, played at the Avs before. Uh, oh, played with the Avs before. Oh, Scott Young. There you go. So they, I mean, they had an, um, yeah, they had an unbelievable team, too. Al McInnes, uh, if I remember correctly, it is. It was two solid teams. We just had better goaltending and a bit of a scare for us. But I think with the LA series, we always thought we could win, even though we ran into a hot goalie. But, you know, that was a series where it was like, that was her. They put a scare into us where, 
they had that much talent that they were that good. If it wasn't for the Patrick Waugh factor, maybe things uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. <laughs> things would have gone a little differently. Game one, as you said, was a win for the Colorado Avalanche. Joe Sackick had two goals and two assists. Game two was just two nights later, as you said. Uh, this was after you got that nasty hit from Sean Hill. You ended up logging 15 shifts during that game, including eight minutes of ice time. The Avalanche rack up another win during game two. And this time, Ray Bork gets on the board for the first time in the playoffs. And you can't talk about this team without talking about Ray Bork. And I know that you mentioned Ray and what he talked about in the locker room, but let's talk about his performance on the ice. You know, he was 40 years old. You're 42 years old now. With his age, does it make it that much more remarkable what he did during the series? Yeah, absolutely. He was, you know, I just remember this uh, couple of things where, you know, in the playoffs, that whole playoffs, everything – Every practice was optional. Every pregame skate was optional, and it wasn't optional for me <laughs> or some of the other guys. Is that pretty typical with during the playoffs with NHL teams? No, I okay. Never was till you know, I was in Colorado, and that was just you know that team. If if Ray Bork didn't know what it took to get ready to play, then there's a problem. Same for Patrick Waugh or you know going down the line. But you know, I just remember Ray where. We had these optional practices, and he'd come out for every optional practice. And I finally look at him, I'm like, "Great, Jesus, man, what are you doing? Like, yeah, God, like 42 years, like 42 years old. <laughs> like, take the day off, man. I would if I was." He's like, "F off, digger." He's like, "I'm only 40, and if I don't come out for <laughs> a little bit, I might not be able to get out of bed the next day." In my back. So, but he was, uh, yeah, he'd come out for 15 or 20 minutes, do a couple shooting drills, and then he'd get off. He could leave whenever you know. He'd, so the way it was is, uh, you know, Trache would run practice, whatever, most of the time. And so if him or Joe or any of the guys wanted to come out and practice, they could leave pretty much at any point. And, you know, us other guys didn't play as much just to keep our cardio and keep our conditioning. We'd skate a little bit more and do extra drills. But I just remember, you know, he was out for every practice. He was a great guy. Never got a shot blocked. That's one thing, you know, even, you know, coaching now. I'm coaching a PBAA team and I've coached multiple age groups for years and just to have a defenseman that can move the puck and just get shots through. And I just think of him and another guy, Nick Lidstrom, mm-hmm. you know, for the Red Wings, just never got shots blocked. And it was just, it was an art for him. He never really took a full slap shot. It was always like a half slapper or a snapshot. Just changed the angle and just made the simple plays and played hard. And, you know, I just remember the respect he had where I think it was at St. Louis series and he was just working somebody over in the corner. And he must have cross checked the guy like four or five times after. The fourth or fifth time, he's just working this guy over, and the ref was like, I just remember, I forget which, what ref it was, and he just said, easy, Bubba, easy. <laughs> like, But he earned that respect, and I just remember like that. I actually played against Crosby in Crosby's first year. He was, you know, pissing him on and whining about a call, and the ref turned around and told him to shut the F up and pay his dues. <laughs> and I was found that quite humorous. So, you know, Ray had obviously earned that uh that respect factor, and again, he wanted to win so bad that uh, he was willing to do whatever it took. He'd gotten his points, and it was an all-star defenseman, and you know this and that. And just it was refreshing for a young guy like me just to be around a guy like that who he treated me the same way he treat Patrick Waugh or any of the other top guys. So it was just a, it was a good experience, and he was that's his commitment to winning and wanting to win and willing to take ice time away from himself. That's what I remember the most about him. The team heads to St. Louis for Game 3. The game would be very close, but of note during this game, you pick up your first playoff point. You, Dave Reed, both pick up assists on a Dan High Note goal. During this playoff run, was that who you were primarily playing with, was those two guys? 
Yeah, it was either it was a combination of like me, me, me reader and high notes or Ryan Preck, depending on who was in the doghouse. So usually it was either high notes or, uh, or Ryan Preck would get a chance. They'd move up in the lineup on the second line. Primarily, yeah. So just easy guys to play with. It didn't matter. Another Bob Hartley story is, you know, he pulled me aside one time before the jersey, uh, during the jersey series. I don't want to jump ahead on you because you're trying to go through it, but. You know, he's just upset to me, you know, Dish, Rhino's your buddy, right? And talking about Steve Reinprack, I said, yeah. He goes, well, tell him to take care of him. And he's playing like he's got eggs in his pants, <laughs> you know. He's scared out there. Tell him. He's your buddy. Tell him to take care of him. You know, tell him to take care of him. Like, you know, I said, okay, sure. So I went over, and, you know, Rhino's like, what do you say? I'm like, you said you're playing like you had eggs in your pants. And he, <laughs> he starts laughing. He's like, what an a-hole, basically. <laughs> anyways, I was just laughing. I said, okay, just if you ask, you just tell him, you know, tell him I told you I'll take care of you. <laughs> so we just had a good laugh. But, yeah, those are the guys I played with and just easy to play with. We knew our job. And, you know, Reader was a veteran guy that played for, you know, I think he'd already played 12, 14 years at that point, mm-hmm. won a cup. And, you know, he used the, one of those old Sherwood wood sticks. It was basically like a two-by-four, but uh, he was a good defensive guy, and he wasn't the fastest guy, but he was so smart. And the things he taught us was just great. So it didn't matter who I played with. It was just they were great players in, in different ways, and they were smart players and knew the game and or were really fast or skilled. And it was just easy guys to play with. Awesome, awesome. Unfortunately, the Blues are able to pull this one out in the second overtime. But the team comes back and Stefan Yell powers the team through the Blues with an overtime goal in game four. And just a few nights later, a big surprise move by the Blues coach, Joel Quinville. He starts backup goalie Brent Johnson. Despite playing well, it takes uh, the game goes to OT, but the Avalanche win again. And just like that, you're going to the Stanley Cup finals. You're a young guy. You're pretty much on the verge of accomplishing what I'm assuming was probably your life dream. Can you tell me what kind of the emotions that were going through your head at that point? Uh, I was like, no big deal. Really? No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. I was just saying, awesome. that was not what I was expecting. No, I'm totally kidding. It was just, uh, it was awesome. I mean, but it was, again, it was like, let's celebrate a little bit. Let's, you know, have a couple of beers or whatever. But it was just about winning. And it was just, you know, your veteran guys that, you know, we just beat a, a great team with Hall of Famers, you know, Al McKinnis and, Kachuk, I mean, there's so, so many good players on that team but uh, that we played against, so we knew we'd beat a good team, but you know, we weren't done. So just we had a, you know had a little bit of fun, enjoyed the moment, but you know we had our Ray Borks, you know, saying, "Listen, we're gonna have a little fun, but then it's back to work because we're not done our goal." You know, and it was just like you had guys, you had guys like that that have played for 18, 20 years. Yeah, you know, I look at it and I go, you know, I was so lucky to be around guys like that. And the fact that, you know, they had to wait that long just to get a chance to win. Because I remember Ray saying, like, he he played against the Oilers in, what, 89-90. He had a couple uh, a couple Stanley Cup final appearances, yeah. Yeah, I know. And he, I remember him saying, he goes, I remember we played against the Oilers. and You know, we had a good team and they won. And I remember, he goes, I remember him saying, he goes, listen, I thought I was going to be back next year. And here I am, you know, how many years, years later? later? Yeah, 15 yeah. years later, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, and there I am. Now I'm finally back. Like, that's don't waste this opportunity like you, this might be the only chance you have so that was uh so it was pretty exciting that uh, we're gonna have an opportunity to play in the finals but you know just have a guy like that where you haven't won anything so we're not we're not really celebrating here boys we're just uh you know we're gonna enjoy the moment and then move on from there we've talked a lot about on the ice during this era 
off the ice, where were you living? Was there, were you living with a teammate? Um, was there a group that you were kind of hanging with off the ice? We all kind of lived in these condos. It was actually a cool little spot. Greg DeVries uh, lived like in the next complex or there was like these little condo buildings and there was a big main place. So we all lived there with our girlfriends and some had wives. And so I lived there with my girlfriend and there was us. And then uh, Eric Bessier lived uh, not too far away and Aaron Miller. And so a lot of us got those guys in school and Hey Duke and but I primarily, uh, we, uh, we'd carpool with users, um, Eric Messier and uh, Greg DeVries. So we'll kind of, and Mess had this huge, uh, this huge Ford truck with dually, dually with the double tires on the back and stuff like that. So, but yeah, we'll kind of live kind of out of town a little bit towards Columbine, kind of out that area. There's a huge mall and, uh, drove in together. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So Eastern Conference Finals was the Devils versus the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Devils toppled the Penguins four to one. You had six games in between six days in between games. And we talked about that. You had a little bit of fun, had a couple pops, but then got back to work pretty quickly. Going into the series, the Devils, God, we talked about other teams being stacked. The Devils had so much depth. They had Patrick Elias, Martin Broder, Scott Stevens, just so many players. What was your role going to be during this series? Just be hard to play against. They had a team where, well, like they had Turner Stevenson, yep. Ken Danico, and I mentioned Niedermeyer, Tommy Albelina. I don't know if he was there. I believe so. But yeah, they had a great team. They, I just remember they, you know, they obviously had a veteran coach, and I think Larry Robinson was a guy, and they just had all the respect in the world for him. But they were just, they rolled their lines. Their fourth line would play 13 minutes, and they had big bodies, and they were hard to play against. And, you always know, remember our focus going in that series was that, you know, you had Marty Berger, who was probably arguably one of the best passers in the game, whether you're a, def- a goalie or a defenseman, because he could probably pass better than a few of his defensemen. Mm-hmm. So, but the way, they, you know, with his ability to handle the puck and, you know, them playing the trap, where all we worked on was a D to D back to D to the weak side. And basically, you had to make three good passes just to get gain entry into the zone. And if you dumped it in, it had to be a perfect dump in the corner where, you know, Marty Berger couldn't get all the way out to get it. And on top of that, you had to keep your head up because you never knew when Scott Stevens was on the ice. And, you know, he could literally take your head off and knock you the next week. So, you know, that was, uh, you know, we knew that. And obviously we planned game plan for that, the coaches and, you know, our pre-scouts and stuff was just that, uh, you know, we had to play a solid. We had talent. We, they had talent. You know, we had a – a very talented team and a very good offensive team, but uh, we had to play good defense and have good puck management if we had an if we wanted to have an opportunity to score. Because the Devils, you know, all those years they just played such good defenses. They just they they play the same way, and they just knew eventually teams would break down and make a you know a bad decision or a bad play at the puck, and they'd get their opportunity. So, you know, that was our focus. Uh, you know, going into that series that. You know, basically, had two teams that had a lot of talent, had a lot of veteran players, had two great goalies, and you know, we just had to stay within our system and, and be smart. Scott Stevens, during that playoff run, oh, yeah. had annihilated everybody, <laughs> everybody, and there was one hit in particular that I think rocked the hockey world, and that was against David Tanabe when they were playing the Carolina Hurricanes. He sent him out of this universe with this hit. Tanabe wasn't wasn't it. Did he not also, was that the year of uh, Ron Francis and Shane Wallace, or was that was that later on? Cause the problem <laughs> is there were so many, I can't even yeah. remember. I mean, there was Paul Correa, there was Lindros. 
my, my thing was, though, and, and kind of where I'm getting with this is, is there anybody more intimidating to play against? And I'm not talking about a fight, but when you cross that blue line that you're worried going, my head might not be connected to the rest of my body at the end of this. We game plan for that. <laughs> no, you had to. You have to. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like you, you just you talk about players and you talk about teams and, you know, what do you need to do? So you talk as a team, you talk about what you, you know, what you, what your goals are and what system and how you want to play. And then, you know, as individuals, you, you think about how you want to play with your line, within your line. And you talk about, hey, you know, I'm here, give me the puck, you know, I'll get it to here and let's just do this and that and whatever. But, you know, in the back of your mind, all we talked about was that once you move the puck, I know for me, you know, anytime I, I chip the puck in, I got my stick up and ready to cross-check somebody because you never knew. It's like the old Gordie Howe where if you're going to hit me, you got to go through my stick or my elbow. And, you know, it was just you never knew when he was on the ice and you didn't want to end up on a highlight reel where <laughs> – you know, you're laying there and he's skating away. And I'll just in that series, a huge defining moment for our team was, well, I think it was game one or game two, where he took a run at Joe Sackick. And, you know, Sacks was a really smart player and, you know, could see the ice very well, thank goodness. And, you know, Scott tried to run him over and Joe saw him at the last minute and dropped his shoulder on him before he had a chance to set himself. And it was just like... Joe dropped the shoulder on him, and Stevens just went like one, one thousand, two, one thousand, and fell on his fell flat on his back. And our whole team was like, "Holy crap! Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ! That way sacks." So, like for him to do that, Joe Sackick was not a physical player by any stretch. He was built like a Greek god and was one of the best conditioned athletes I've ever played with. But you know, for him to do that and drop a shoulder on him, we all went, "Holy crap!" You know, I'll get everyone fired up. Yeah, as a teammate, yeah, that was a huge moment for us because it was kind of like sticking up, uh, you know, punching the bear in the nose or sticking up to the, the schoolyard bully, and that was that was huge for our team. Game one happens, and Joe Skakic scores a pair of goals to lead the team to a 5 nothing victory. You end up scrapping with Sean O'Donnell, and I was kind of surprised when I read this. This was actually your first fight of the playoffs. Just kind of curious, what was the reasoning behind fighting in the finals, whereas, you know, maybe not fighting in some of the prior rounds? I don't know, to be honest with you. It was uh, it wasn't about fighting or not fighting. It was that Bob Harley was my coach and he wanted me to run around like an idiot and not take any penalties. <laughs> so Fair enough. You know, so basically, yeah, so run around and play physical but don't take any penalties. No, that makes sense. Which, wow, it's very difficult to do. I was gonna say I, I think <laughs> the statement doesn't make any sense, but what he wanted made it sense. I just don't yeah. know if it's possible or not. No, no, I, you know, playoffs are the playoffs and again it wasn't really about fighting and you know, in that series, yeah, I had two fights. I remember O'Donnell and but the O'Donnell fight was just we were we were playing in their end, and I was playing a ride prac, and uh, I believe it was Dave Reed. I think Steve scored that game, if I remember correctly. And you know, just getting worked over, O'Donnell was just working me over because he couldn't get the puck away from us, and we were just working them down low in their own end. So. Yeah, it was just a reaction to I think I got cross-checked too many times and didn't like it very much. Game two ends up going in the favor of the Devils. During this game, Bob Corcoran scored a big goal for the Devils, and Martin Brodeur anchored the Devils to a 2-1 win. Speaking of Brodeur, he's one of the best goalies of all time. As someone that played against him, you mentioned his passing, but were there any other skills that he possessed? Was his angling? What made him so hard to beat? I don't know. Just he was that good. And he was... Uh... You know, before the year of like, so we did video, obviously. And I mean, now there's just even so much more video and you're looking at, you know, guys are, you know, like watching goalie videos. And we would a little bit, but it wasn't to the depth of what they do now or in or have maybe in the last five, six years. But 
I think just his ability, his his downright ability was unbelievable. And he was a competitor, which, uh, you know, like a Patty Waugh, where he did not want to get scored on. And <clears throat> he was just so unorthodox, too, where you didn't know if you're going to get a two-pad stack or a butterfly or a leg kick or you just didn't know. And it was just, you look at some of the saves he made and you don't expect it. And it's just, you know, he's probably one of the last of the finest of those type of goalies, like the Grand Fears and, you know, that sort that's uh, really acrobatic. And, you know, they would just make different saves where now you look at goalies and everything's an angle and you push over and are you square or your pads down and, you know, the hole's taken up at the angles. And I always remember from Marty, is that, uh, you know, he was all about his angles. And, you know, with the style they played and the trap style and how well they played defensively that, you know, he could play the shot. So if you look at a lot of, you know, highlights in his saves and, you know, you look at where he is, sometimes he's at the face-off dot. And the guy's coming down the wing and <laughs> he's on at the face-off dot kind of dragging his, 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 his inside foot a little bit because he knew, you know, Ken Danico or – Scott Stevens, you know, we talked about him. They had the pass. So all you had to do was play the shot. So, you know, I just think his ability is, is downright God-given talent and just, you know, his ability and his athleticism and uh, just on the unorthodox way in which he played made it very difficult as a – not that I was, believe me, an elite goal scorer or a goal scorer really at all at the NHL level. Just It just made it difficult to get a read on what he was going to do. And, you know, it really surprised guys. Game three slides in the series back towards the Avalanche and Billy Neiman and Dan Hynote are both allotted for their efforts. They were both playing wing with for uh, Chris Jury. Talk about an odd combination there. Why do you think it worked between these three guys? Because Dan Hynote can skate like the wind. <laughs> there's, them, there's my answer. Well, and it's just, you know, same with Billy Neiman and just he, he could skate fast and he was like the guy. So you had two physical guys that could score that had, you know, good uh, offensive ability, but just were physical and would get in the four check. And, you know, Chris Drury, just a, just a smart player, really cerebral and, you know, the veteran guy. And that's why it worked. It was basically, you got these two young kids and not, I mean, let's be honest, Chris Drury was a kid too. He was a, he was a young guy. I think at that point it was 24, 25, somewhere around, in and around there. And, you know, just it worked to the fact that you have two guys that are getting an opportunity to play on one of the top two lines one of the best teams you know in the league in the stanley cup finals uh, how good you know how bad's your day yeah. <laughs> pretty good you know like if you're not fired up to play with chris jury on the second line for the colorado avalanche against the new jersey devils there's something wrong with you and, you know it's just again it's obviously unfortunate what happened with you know peter forsberg and stuff but it was just an opportunity for the guys to to play and play more minutes and there's two guys it's made the most of the opportunities they got and you know we needed that as a team and they stepped up and you know Heino and Forsberg and you know Heino and I were buddies and Heino and Forsberg were pretty good buddies and you know they're just playing for each other so it's uh that's to me that says it all is that uh, they got an opportunity to play and man they were gonna do everything they could and make the most of their opportunity. Game four at the Continental Arena proves to be a difficult one for the Avalanche the talk of this game was a rare fumble by Patrick Waugh he misplayed the puck behind the net and the mistake is picked up by Jay Pandolfo before Scott Gomez puts it in the net. In the NHL, when a guy makes a mistake like that, and this is just me having to ask, do coaches call them out individually, or is it just kind of one of these things of, look, we know the guy screwed up. We don't need to talk about it. We're talking about Patrick Waugh? <laughs> oh, okay. When you put it like that, when it's Patrick Waugh, I think the answer would be, we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to say a word, because, you know, if it was anybody else, and at that point of the season, really, 
Bob had backed off with a lot of uh, a lot of the verbal stuff. And you know, before it would have been during the season, if it would have been me or somebody or I know it would have been. What are you thinking? What are you doing? You know, you no business. But you know, a lot of people. You know, something that a lot of people don't know is that you know Patrick Law at times when he was bored, he'd go and play the puck and he intentionally turn it over. Really. Yeah, and I just I, – I remember there was one time, and I – you know, when you're on the fourth line in Colorado, if you got scored on, your night was over. It didn't matter, first period, second period, could be five minutes in the game. If you're on the fourth line, you got scored on. It didn't matter if, like, a defenseman fell down. You had no – it wasn't your fault So it could all. have nothing to do with you. No, yeah, I could – you know, I could have blocked a shot, two shots, and, you know, whatever, and I didn't get it out. You know, you got scored on, your night's over. And so, you know, Patty wasn't – getting a lot of action, he'd go out and play the puck, fired up the boards, and, you know, kind of intentionally, and he'd scramble back in the net. I remember the one game we were playing, I think we were playing the Devils, and I said something to him, like, during the regular season, like, Patty, what are you doing? He's like, he's like, ah, oh, you know, it's a sport, need to get a little action kind of thing. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Patty, like, I love you, but please don't do that when I'm on the ice, because if I get scored on, my night's over. Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry, you won't get scored on. <laughs> but, but he would intentionally, you know, like, he loved to play the puck, and you know, obviously, at that point in the season, uh, where we were, he wasn't intentionally doing it. But, yeah, he, before that, he'd get out there and play the puck just to get get himself going and get the blood flowing a little bit so he'd have to scramble back into the net. So, yeah, he would do that. And, obviously, he didn't mean to do that then. But there's that's where everyone went, okay, we're not here without this guy. So, you know, obviously, we're going to rally around him. And, you know, we know he'd do anything for us. And uh, so nothing, yeah, there was nothing that needed to be said or done. It was like, you know, we got your back. We'll do whatever we can for you. It's now a best of three series, and it starts in favor of the Devils. They end up winning game five and put the Avalanche on the brink of elimination. You guys fight back to tie the series in an unreal game six. With 16 seconds left in the game, Greg DeVries is going down on Martin Brodeur, but you get tangled <laughs> up with Ken Danico, which I'm sure was a nice name to put on your resume. It's 4 nothing. You guys have clearly won this game. What makes you decide to scrap with Ken Danico? No, um, I know what you're saying, because we laughed about that, because... Well, so in that game, Foot scored the first goal, I believe, and so I had hit Scott Gomez, and he turned it over, and Footy's going in, and it's actually two-on-one, and I'm wide open. I'm calling for it, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm screaming, and so Footy takes the slapper and scores. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what – I think that's I'm what like, it was. Yeah, I'm like, Footy, like, you didn't hear me? He's like – well, come on. He's like, come on, Dish. You think I'm going to pass to you? Come on. <laughs> Jeez. Thanks. I'm like, you're an, I'm like, you're an asshole. <laughs> so then, uh, whatever. You know, so then, uh, yeah. So the face off, you know, we're at the end of the game and I'm out there and I don't want to fight because, you know, game's over and Danico starts whacking me and I'm like, oh, geez. Like, he's whacking me. I'm like, I don't want to fight you. And he's like, come on, let's go. And then, so, yeah, sure enough. So Dries go wheeling in and, so we had a chuckle about that. He's like, Jesus, Dish, what are you – I had a breakaway. I was going to score. I'm like, you weren't going to score. He's like, you don't know that. <laughs> what are you doing fighting? I'm like, sorry, man. I wouldn't have fought. I wouldn't have So, yeah, there's stuff like that where, you know, again, we had a little chuckle about it because, you know, what are the odds of him going in on a breakaway and I'm fighting Kid Danica? <laughs> so I was like, sorry, buddy. Sorry, man. <laughs> I just thought it was great. I was like, what a name to add to your resume for fighting. Ken Danico, man. That's a good one. And you know, uh, veteran, yeah, just a tough veteran guy that had been around a while, and I didn't even want to fight him. You know what I mean? Like I, like, I have so much respect for those guys and obviously what they've done. And, you know, but if the guy wants to fight, and, you know, you'll fight him and, I don't want to hurt him by any stretch of that, you know. You're that far into the series, and obviously you're, you know, towards the end where you're thinking about winning and, you know, all that. And I just, you know, that game, too, we won and won decisively. But that was, that goes back to the conversation we had at training camp where 
we're finishing first overall, so if we have game seven, it's in our building. So we're going into game six, and, you know, we knew it was basically, we were, you know, so Bob Bob got up and gave a speech for the game, and, you know, and then all this, and everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, great, whatever. And, you know, and then Ray Bork stood up and said, you know, we're frigging uh, a couple F-bombs in there, but we're frigging winning this game, and I believe you guys, that's why I came back, and, you know, it was basically like one of those Braveheart moments again. Like, we're winning this game, and anything less is unacceptable. We're going to go out, we're going to win this game, and we're going to go back, and we're going to win game seven. Like, who's with me, basically? And I was like, woo! <laughs> me! Freedom, yeah. Like, it was like, yay! You know, so it was, that was it, though. It was just, yeah, so I was before the game, and then after the game, you know, everyone's like, we're cheering, you know, have a little fun, and then we get on the bus, and, you know, they had beers on the bus, so, you know, guys, you know, guys have a beer or two on the bus, nothing crazy at all, but uh, I just remember Ray again standing up saying, all right, boys, hey, you know, whatever, he's like, you know, effing rights, you know, what a game, and I'm staring, he's like, we don't want anything, yeah, you know, yeah, we're going home, and we're winning game seven, who's with me, and I was like, woo, you know, whatever, and, you know, that was, that was just a couple little things before the game and after the game, and it was, uh, you know, it's pretty cool, because you got to, the guy was over 40 and the guy who was under 30 and guys that are around 20 and all different ages and just, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> what a memory. What a memory. Yeah, just very, very cool. Yeah. It's time for game seven at the Pepsi Center. You don't seem like the kind of guy now that I've talked to you for a little bit that strikes me as a guy that gets nervous. Are you at least a little nervous before game seven? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, crap in your pants. All right, so you are human then. Game seven, does anybody say anything in the locker room before the game? I don't really remember, to be honest with you. I'm kind of joking. It wasn't, I wasn't like crap my pants, like, but it was just a good, nervous energy. It was just, you know, we felt like we were going to win you know, every pregame now, but they might have slept 40 minutes, maybe. I don't know. You know, we always stayed in a hotel and at home. They started a thing where the night before the game, we'd stay in the hotel and the day of the game, just so you don't have to do the commute, you know, back and forth from the suburbs down to the Pepsi Center or whatever, because traffic could be pretty bad in Denver. And you don't really remember what too, like, what, too much what was said, but it was just basically, I don't know, I think it was Ray again, or just, it was just, nothing really needed to be said. It was just, you know, we're here. We got 15 wins. Our mission was 16. You end up winning this game 3 nothing, I believe. Does anything else? Was it three nothing or three one? I can't. Uh, you are correct. It was three one. They it was you yeah. had a three nothing lead and they came back and scored one. So you are correct. Yeah. Oh, I remember like really. It's just a blur to be honest with you. But I just remember, you know, the finality of it. And we're just going to do whatever it takes. So I just remember that was a game. Alex Tangi had two goals and obviously was a terrifically talented player, but was playing with Joe Sakic and. Yeah, I think one of his goals was a rebound. Sacks went down, shot, he got the rebound. I think the other one was like a wraparound or something where he got the rebound and roofed it. But I just remember we got the lead and just – I still like an NHL Classic, so I'll have the game on here and there and I'll watch it and just so happens and I'll see it. And just looking back, like you think you remember things, you forget things and so on and so forth. And I just remember about that. One thing that really stuck out in that game was that – you never like the you're up two nothing or whatever it was. You did even if three, it didn't feel safe. Like it just felt like you needed to keep playing good defense or you needed to get on. But I just remember watching watching the game over. It was in the third period? Uh, I think they had one really prime scoring chance, like one legitimate scoring chance. I think it was Elias. He made a move around or split uh, Ray Bork and someone else. And other than that, it was just everything was off the glass and out, and it was a. Uh, 
you know, it was just a really simple game, and it just seemed like the clock took forever to, to wind down. And, you know, to me, that's just what I remember is that you have the best players in the world. I mean, obviously on both teams, we had some terrifically talented players on our team. They were just – weren't even trying to score. It was just playing good defense, playing the game the right way, as I like to say. And, you know, I coach the kids on, just play the game the right way. And it was defense first, and we knew Patrick Wall was going to make some saves for us, but it just – you know, we had a lead, and – we were just going to play good defense. And if they were going to score, they were going to have to come 200 feet. They were going to have to beat five guys. And I just, you know, that's what I recall. And just, uh, you know, last minute or 30 seconds of that game, you know, it took an eternity. And the buzzer went. So obviously it was elation. And ESPN announcer Gary Thorne yelled at the end of the game the Colorado have won the cup. Ray Bork, a dream come true. Do you remember taking that lap and experiencing that with, you know, what went through your mind, the emotions when you're, you know, you're going around the Pepsi Center with a cup in your hands? Uh, it's just dream come true, you know, to be yeah. honest with you. And uh, you know, my cool. parents are there, my sister, and a good friend of mine, my best buddy growing up. And then my wife is there. I just remember looking around trying to find them, see where Very they were cool. sitting. As I'm looking around, like, I think they're in this section, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Gary Batman, and Ray Bork, you waited long enough, here's your whatever, yep. blah, blah, blah. Or Joe Sackick, you know, like when he went up, and obviously Joe gave it to, to Ray and just, just all that. And I just remember hanging out with the guys and just getting my chance to, you know, skate with it and hoist it and, you know, give it a kiss and stuff. And, you know, just like, wow. To be honest, you ask people, like, you ask guys, you know, they'll watch the videos, like, you know, what's it like? You're like, oh, it's great. It's, you know, words can't really describe, yeah. you know, everything that goes into that where you could be the best player in the world, but if you don't know, you're on the right team at the right place at the right time and, you know, and like guys stepping up and making plays and, you know, we want a cup of arguably without our best player or 1A or 1B, you know, depending on who you ask with. You know, we're missing Peter Forsberg, and we just look at uh, – we were a team that had talented players, but we were a team. And we had guys that were the best in the business that would do anything to win, would take less ice time, would sacrifice scoring to win. And that's – to me, that's kind of – you know, when you look around, and I'm, I remember, like, hugging Rob Blake, and, like, he's like, this, I'm like, Blakey, like, ah, you know, we're screaming. And, you know, I remember we did a team picture and he went in the locker He actually went in the locker room, came out and brought me a beer. And so you can't really see it in the team picture. We'd already cracked the cold one. So it was just, uh, it was just awesome. It was just, uh, you know, it was a dream come true for me. And, you know, my teammates, there's obviously a few guys that had already won before, 96, been through it before. But it's just, uh, you take a 20-year-old man or 18-year-old man or a 40-year-old man and, you know, you win the Stanley Cup, you're 12 or you're 10 or you're 14 and you're just, uh, you know, you're screaming like a schoolgirl and oh, that's awesome. you know, jumping up and down and crying tears of joy or happiness, whatever it may be. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I remember just, uh, you know, looking around for my family and, you know, my wife and then obviously just going in the room after and uh, I was lucky enough. I'd met Ron McClain before and he was an awesome guy and did an interview with him. So I was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, it was just a great Great experience. <laughs> Tough to summarize it in a couple words. It's just, uh, you know, it's just everything you work for and you dream of and it just comes true. Uh, that's basically what it is. I've got goosebumps just hearing it. And then, of course, I'm assuming you guys have the parade. And then what did you end up doing with the cup when you had to, to spend your day with it? Uh, well, yeah, obviously, yeah, the parade was, was awesome. I just remember we got to meet like, that year 
the year before we beat Detroit. Then we got to went to this huge KBPI Rocks Rockies. It was the local radio station, rock station, and and it was up in uh, Red Rocks. So it's a big concert, bunch of the guys, and we got to meet uh, guys from Godsmack, and, and then through them we met the guys from Stained. And you know, I just remember the parade day. Stain was in town, so I got to meet those guys and got to be pretty good friends with the guys in the band. And, so they were in town, and they actually just went number one, I think, that week with Break the Cycle. They sold 750,000 records. And so we had the parade that day, and they came to the party at the Chop House after. And the Chop House is where actually Peter was when he you know, was feeling the discomfort and the abdominal pain. And then we had the spleen issue. And But uh, below the Chop House, there was a place called Sing Sing, and it was a piano bar. And they had dueling pianos in the basement. So we all went downstairs, and I could play drums, and the guys from Stain were there. And I just remember, like, I'm, like, so excited because I'm a big rock guy and music guy. Like, I like country music, but I primarily like metal and, like, little hip-hop and stuff. And, you know, I'm, like, you know, you guys just went number one. Like, holy crap, that's awesome, you know. And then these guys are, like, they just went number one. You know, they got a, <laughs> they got a gold record. Their, their record label just gave them presidential Rolexes as a, you know, a gift or whatever. And I just remember the drummer, John Wysocki, at the time, he's no longer with the band. But, you know, I remember I let him hoist the cup and, you know, he calls his dad, and he's almost in tears. He's like, Dad, I just got to tell you, you know. And oh, my God. You know, he's like, uh, he goes, I just met Ray Bork, and I hoisted the cup because they're like, you know, Boston area guys like Springfield and Massachusetts uh, guys. So, yeah, like he was so – I'm like, dude, you just went number one. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's just so it neat. Yeah, so it's just, it just goes to show you that, uh, you know, like they were, they were the best at, you know, for that time, that week, they were the best in the business in music. But here they are at the Stanley Cup party, and how excited they are because they're big sports guys. You know, it's all about the Red Sox and Bruins. They like the Avs because they met a few of us guys. And it was just really cool to see guys as best at what they do. And now, like, dude's almost in tears because he got to meet Ray Bork and got to hoist the Stanley Cup. So it was, you know, a pretty surreal moment, pretty cool. And obviously we had fun. And then I don't know if you've heard this story before, but the guy, good buddy of mine, Sean Podine, um, you know, has done a, a ton for – for charity and raised a lot of money over the years and some great families. And so he, he'd heard a guy wore his equipment for 23 hours after winning. So he was going to wear his equipment for 24 hours. So <laughs> after the game, he uh, kept all the stuff up. The only thing he took off was his helmet and his gloves. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he walked to the bar and in skates, no skate guards. <laughs> and oh. up and like, it was awesome. Everyone's like, Jesus Christ, pose. what are you doing? Like, he's like, well, I don't got to break a record. So he's been, yeah. So his wife, super nice lady, like, yeah. So just these snippets like that, just fun stuff. And like, oh, sure, how was, you know, next day or, you know, she's like, you know, after you know, the, the night we won or whatever, she's like, oh, it was okay. But then when he tried to get in the bed, I'm like, dude, there's no He smelled so bad. So, yeah, yeah, 24 hours. So he set the new record. So, yeah, we, uh, you know, the parade was awesome. We went through downtown. There was like 300,000 people on. You know, so obviously Denver's a great, a great, it's a beautiful city. It's a great sports town. And, you know, it was just uh, so many different things like that to just, you know, like, you, you know, might never, you know, never happen again. Just, you know, friends we met in famous bands like Stained and, you know, other people along the way just happen to be there and just, you never know. You just never know stuff like that will happen. And it was, uh, it was just really cool to be able to celebrate that with such great people, great, great athletes, great musicians, my family and, you know, all that stuff was just—it was just awesome. Did you actually get to jam out with Godsmack a little bit, or I'm sorry, Stained? 
Uh, both. Uh, yeah, I went down for sound check and stuff. So they had a concert, actually. We went to the concert and a backstage pass. And, you know, still friends with those guys to this day. And, you know, we actually played drums with Garth Brooks in Vegas. And uh, just met some great people over the years. Just, oh, uh, yeah, just really, mostly through charity work and stuff. And so, yeah, just uh, so that even that night, I went down to Sing Sing, that piano bar. And it was funny. Like, so we, were, we had the cup and I'm playing drums and, you know, cups on stage, and then we we're trying to get the drummer from Stained on the stage, and the piano guy's like, Phew. you know, I looked at him, and he's got a full sleeve of tattoos, and kind of looked at him like, oh, what do you think you're doing? My wife was like, you don't understand, it's John Misaki from Stained, they just went number one, <laughs> they sold summer. The guy was like, oh, really? Like, you're like, no, you don't understand, like, oh, okay, and then, so, you know, you know, he gets on the drum, on the drum kit, and literally, like, five seconds in, the guy's like, okay, he can play. <laughs> he's not so he's bad. Obviously. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. let him up here. Well, I'll yeah, tell you what. Chris, I'm sorry I took so much of your time this evening, but uh, but I can't thank you enough. What are you up to now, though? Uh, t- tell everyone what you're up to. Are you on social media? How could people, if they want to reach out, get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Twitter, I think I'm at Dingdish. Facebook, I think it's just me. It's, uh, I'm Instagram, I think... I think it's just Ding Dish or my name and then just up in Edmonton and working for Epoch Western Canada and Stout Gloves and uh, selling impact and safety gloves with my brother-in-law and just keeping the world safe, coaching hockey and just having fun. I want to thank Chris again for coming on the podcast. He told some great stories. I really liked hearing about Patrick Waugh and Ray Bork and what kind of leaders they were and just how they all stood up for their teammates. It's, you know, both of those guys you want to believe are awesome people because they were such good hockey players. And I know for me, I looked up to Waugh and Bork as a kid. So it's cool to hear that they're good people and that the guys I looked up to weren't dirtbags. You know what I mean? Also got a kick out of hearing Sean Podine walking around the city in skates. I can only imagine a guy with his full uniform on, his full gear. But then you add the skates to it. Must have been a pretty good sight to see. Anyways, thanks again to Chris for coming on. Please, 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 if you enjoyed the show, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow us on social media. Heck, you can also leave us a review on Facebook, which people have been doing. So thank you for that. Anyways, we've got another episode coming up on Monday. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in to Snapshots in Hockey History.